Today's sponsor is Hired.com. Hired is the platform for top developer and designer jobs. So if I'm using Hired.com, how many offers would I expect to get? Well, that's the great part about Hired.com, Sean. You sign up once, submit one application, and you get an average of five offers on the platform. And those offers would include the salary and equity up front, right? Of course. That's the way it works everywhere, right? Oh, uh, I don't think that's the way it works, no. Okay, right. So usually you have to go through like three interviews, and then they finally decide they want you, and they give you your salary information, and you're like, oh my god, this is $30,000 less than I wanted, right? But with Hired, you're going to get that salary and equity information up front before you even interview. So that's the like really tricky part about handling a job negotiation is all handled up front, and then you go and you interview, which is a super nice way to do that. What if I'm a contractor or part-time? Hired's got you covered there, too. They have contract and part-time opportunities. And if you if you wanted to work for like a top company like Facebook or Uber or Stripe or some big name like that, those people are all on the platform as well. And the other thing is it's totally free for you to sign up as a candidate right now. And if you do that today at Hired.com slash Bike Shed, all one word, you'll get a $2,000 bonus just for signing up with that link. Thanks again to Hired for sponsoring today's show. Now there's no echo, but there's a massive delay between the video and the audio. Like the video is ahead of the audio or the other way around? Other way around. By about yeah. uh, two seconds almost. That's Skype, right? I don't know. Uh, hold on. <laughs> Fixed it. <laughs> Hello, Sean. Hi, Derek. Hi, Lila. How are you guys doing? Uh, I'm doing well, I think. Yeah, I'm in the process of buying a house and selling a house, so I'm actually Whoa. like really stressed outside of work. But when I come to work, it's actually excellent because it clear. It's yeah. like one of the things I can do that just totally clears my head of all the other crap I'm going to going dealing with. So totally, totally, it's your happy space. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How are you, yeah. Sean? Tired. I'm still on India time. How did the conference go? The conference was good. All of the talks were great, and it's a very di- it's very different, vibrant community over there. It was it was just interesting getting to see both the just the culture in general, and then also how the development community and the Ruby community differs from from out here. It's a good conference. What was the talk that you gave? What was the topic? What Active Record can learn from Diesel and other languages. Oh, cool, cool. Oh, cool. Yeah. I thought you were giving the same one you'll be giving at RailsConf, but that's that sounds like a... Not that the one at RailsConf doesn't sound cool, but I know you were, <laughs> I think, super excited to give that talk, so... Yeah. It ended up being uh, basically just diesel, because I didn't realize until close to when I was giving it that it was a 25-minute talk and not a 45-minute talk. <laughs> uh. <laughs> it really wanted to be a 45-minute talk, uh, so the okay. Ecto could get in there, too. Nice, nice. <laughs> cool. Well, I'm doing well. I am starting on a rewrite this week, So, well, which is not technically a rewrite, which we'll get to later, but I wanted to talk about rewrites today because I would love to hear your thoughts on how and when to do them. And I know they're a pretty controversial topic because the guideline is generally never do one, right? That's like the standard advice is like never do a big rewrite. Yeah, yeah but, but that never flies with consultants. Too absolute. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the only place I've seen that guideline come from really is Joel Spolsky, right? Yeah. It's not that he doesn't know what he's talking about. I think he's right most of the time. But like, I feel like everybody knows about that blog post now. So everybody's like, you should never rewrite anything. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. That blog post kind of sets up a straw man, and then there are a bunch of other blog posts that are like, well, I mean, here are the situations in which it might be appropriate. Right. I don't know. I mean, I would say I've been involved in some pretty terrible, like projects in pretty terrible shape that like people have wanted to rewrite, but based on my experiences with rewrites, which are sometimes not dissimilar to Joel's experiences that he lays out in that article, um, which we'll link to in the show notes if you haven't seen it. I off, I do resist them for as long as possible, but when it's appropriate, I've seen them go well and be the best decision for the business. So I think it kind of depends. Yeah, to Sean's point, what's interesting is that the, so I was involved in a rewrite over the summer and that was a straight rewrite, just like just rewriting the functionality uh, one for one with some minor improvements to the user experience. And this one is, I, I, I said earlier, it's not technically a rewrite because we are redesigning some of the core flows. So anyway, my point is that in both of these cases, the client, the clients approached us saying, we want this, we want to rebuild this. And we're kind of going, okay, sure. Yeah, that seems reasonable. If, if you've thought through the options and this is what you want to do, then we can do that. Have there been cases where you felt like a rewrite was not the way to go, but there was someone pushing for that? Hmm. Yeah, I think most more often than not, a rewrite is always um, something that in everybody's head would go better than we expect it to, mm-hmm. or than it would, than it actually would rather. Right, right, right. It depends a lot on the team size, I think. Interesting. Because um, Shopify's never been rewritten, mm-hmm. and at this point, it's it's like. How could that even happen for the core for the core application? Who would be responsible? Do the other hundreds of developers who work on the the code base have to just learn an entirely new code base? Mm-hmm. Whereas, as like T one D, right? That qualifies as a rewrite, I think. Right, Derek? Yeah, I mean, we re- rewrote it, and we also introduced new functionality at the same time. I think most rewrites end up that way. Like, as much as yeah. people are like, we're just going to rewrite what's there, people end up making because because now, like, the reason why you're rewriting is it'll make the changes you want to make easier. It'll make it easier to maintain. It'll make it more performant. Whatever the case may be, but usually there's a reason, something you wanted to change that is too difficult to change in the current system, and or many things, right? So along the way, generally things end up changing. And that's what happened with T1D. We ended up making improvements to it. And it was definitely, I mean, you'd have to talk to them to ask if it was ended up being worth it. But to my eye, like they ended up with a much better product at the end of it. But the, I mean, the question is, right, because we, we can make assessments on it based on the fact that it didn't go horribly wrong. Mm-hmm. But it's hard to then say, well, what if we didn't rewrite it? What if we refactored the application and isolated the things that we wanted to change and and went on a progression that way? Would it have been, even if the resulting code base might not have been better, would it have been significantly less time? It's a good question. Yeah. (laughs) Those are things you can't, like, at our scale, we can't know, right? Right. It's a thing that large companies, like Microsoft is always doing research like this. I don't know if they've looked into this particular problem, but they have so many teams and so many products and so many things going on that I feel like they can get enough, even them, maybe not enough uh, sample size on something like that. But they're certainly somebody I would look to. I wonder if they have any Microsoft research papers on rewrites or anything like that. There must be. Yeah, that would be interesting. I think Sean's point about the team size factoring into the decision is key. In my experience, the rewrite I was involved in over the summer and this one currently, the developer teams on the client's 
uh, side on the client's team are minimal, like either other consultancies or like one or two people. And all of their time is spent just fighting fires in the old, the legacy code base. And the decision the organization made was that their developers didn't have the bandwidth to be incrementally refactoring and improving the code base while simultaneously addressing the issues that are coming up because of the way the code was currently written. So it was like a business decision, I think, basically, to devote resources that could be devoted to incrementally improving and refactoring and making the application better to a big push to just isolate the process uh, to a team of other people and like just do it in parallel with maintaining the legacy system. I mean, that that seems like an odd progression to me, though. We don't have the bandwidth to refactor and develop new functionality, but somehow we will come up with the bandwidth to rewrite from scratch and develop new functionality. Yeah. I mean, I think people underestimate, like, they think, like, oh, the parts that we already know about, like, we can very easily port those. But the Mm -hmm. the thing is, like, there's so much that you don't realize you don't know about your current code base until you you start trying to re-implement it. You're like, wait, what? why is it doing this? This looks silly. And then you just get rid of it. You're like, there's no reason for this. Like you, you look at a piece of code five, 10 times and you're like, this does not absolutely nothing. Or like this has no impact on anything that happens after it or whatever. And so you remove it and then no tests fail. And then somebody like weeks later, somebody's trying to use the app and they're like, Hey, this thing that used to work doesn't work. And you're like, I, <laughs> I have, I cannot comprehend how what I removed impacted that, but yet it did. Right. Yeah. And I feel like those are the case, those are the things that always come up in rewrites. So I think it's easy when you're sitting out at the outset to look and be like, we don't have the bandwidth to continually refactor this and make the product improvements we want to make. Mm-hmm. So we need to like immediately go into like, <laughs> I guess like if there's technical debt and then you're like declaring bankruptcy from your technical debt, mm-hmm. right? right. <laughs> Where you're like, I declare technical debt bankruptcy and we're going to start again. Right, right, exactly. Um, so I don't think I don't think anybody makes a decision like, oh, we're going to go faster by rewriting it. It's more like later on down the road will be faster. Is yeah. that like, is that the idea you were trying to say that they had? I think so. Like it's not it's not that they were going to go faster by re- like overall faster by rewriting. Yeah. It. it was just that it was going to eventually pave the way for them to go faster. Yeah, I think that was the thinking. And also, well, I guess on the one hand, instead of instead of engaging a consultancy to do a rewrite, you can engage them to work alongside your developers and do that work of incrementally refactoring. So those resources could be allocated towards different things. So uh, that that is another way that could have been done. So yeah, I don't know. This is this is making me <laughs> question <laughs> everything I did over the summer. <laughs> no. I, I feel like I've never been I've never been the one on the like even T one D, which was a rewrite, the decision to do the rewrite had been made maybe a week or two before I joined ThoughtBot. Mm-hmm. I wasn't part of the team that recommended doing the rewrite. I am not familiar intimately with the pains that led to the decision to do the rewrite. Yeah, Maybe we can talk about those afterwards. But I feel like having done a couple small rewrites myself on projects that were like my completely my own responsibility, things I wrote from scratch the first time, and then was like, oh, I want to rewrite this because I know something better or whatever. Like, I feel like when you're a younger, more ex- inexperienced developer... I guess younger is the wrong word. What I'm looking for is more inexperienced developer. Your urge to rewrite is very, very strong, and you frequently learn a lot by doing it. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it has like a kind of virtuous cycle. Like you want to do it, and you learn a lot by doing it. But conversely, like you frequently, like I feel like my the first few rewrites I did, it was like, oh, like I learned a lot technically by doing this. It didn't go 100% well because of X. 
next time it won't that won't happen and then like you're like oh well why <laughs> next time that won't happen and then z but that won't happen next and then yeah like you start to see a pattern as you get more experience and then you read things like from joel and you're like oh you know what he's you know he's right about that <laughs> so now i have this ingrained like don't do a rewrite thing mm-hmm. and i feel like that's kind of comparable to the like the old expression of nobody ever got fired for buying ibm Hmm. which was like you know ibm at the time was the mainstay and like if you wanted to be safe you bought it you bought ibm and so like if you want to i feel like as a consultant if you want to make the safe choice you you can say rewrites don't pay right yeah like you need to double down on paying down technical debt on your current code base because here are all the problems with rewrites um so i would definitely i've have shied away like clients have asked like well should we just rewrite this thing and like so far, I've only given that advice once myself to say like you absolutely. That was on. We've talked about this project before on the show. It was like the what I say is the worst code base oh, I've ever yeah, seen. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But they were only going to be with us for like four to six weeks, and it was like, okay, we do not have time to rewrite this. Yeah. Like we have time to nurse this along to help you launch your business. Yep. But you cannot build a bigger business on top of this. Like it's just not going to happen. Yeah. And it was literally like there was there's just it was not going to be worth refactoring. Um, so we did give that advice, and that came you know that was my my voice saying that, and then also like Joe, our CTO, had looked at the code base, and he also felt the same way. Ian in New York had looked at the code base, he felt the same way. Our designer who deals with the designer parts of it was also feeling the same way. So it was like pretty much a universal like, yeah, you should do this. We don't have the time to do this. But other projects I've given have been like the. I've given the talk of like, I would love nothing more than to start on a greenfield project that implements all of this for you, but it's probably not the right thing to do. Yeah. And a little, that might be a little bit of that nobody gets fired for, for buying IBM kind of thing. Totally. I think there's also like a rewrite can be one of two very different beasts. And the, the, the thing that answers which one of them it's going to be is the question, do you keep the old test suite? Mm. Hmm. Interesting. How do you, what do you, how do you mean? Have you ever done a rewrite and kept the old test suite? Yeah, Absolutely. At least the integration test suite, right? Because um, any time that it's a that that you're trying to go feature for feature, and you're truly just trying to rewrite with the same functionality, that's the best way to guarantee that you actually maintain the same functionality. Yeah, that's true. Usually, though, if I'm rewriting, the tests are also pretty bad. <laughs> right. I've never been in a situation where I was like, "This test suite is great, but man, this code is terrible." <laughs> Well, but that's the thing, right, is that there's also a difference between a test suite that's just brittle or or poorly written versus, uh, but is still, especially on the integration side, comprehensive. Yeah, that's true. Versus a test suite that, that uh, you can't actually trust, right? Like if it has good coverage, if you're not actually, if you don't actually need to change it. But I think I think when you're when you're keeping the tests right, that also then leads to uh, that 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 sort of pushes toward a little bit more towards. Well, maybe that could have been an incremental refactor if the test suite's going to stay the same. Mm-hmm. What if? And I think this was the case with the project over the summer. The test coverage is pretty low. And I think that may have been one of the factors that led them to want to do a rewrite because they figured like one step was just going to be writing integration tests for the existing features anyway. Right. Well, and then at that point, it's so hard to actually feel that you know that you're keeping feature for feature compatibility. Yeah. I think it's it works best when you acknowledge that you that you're essentially building a new product at that point. Yep. And then actually also use that as a excuse to cut functionality that maybe hasn't hasn't panned out the way that that your business had hoped and and is leading, you know, the easiest way to get to, to reduce technical debt is just to remove functionality yes. entirely. Totally. At which point is it a rewrite? <laughs> or is it a redesign? A right. relaunch. <laughs> relaunch. Yeah, reboot. 
Yeah, the project I'm involved in right now is a rewrite. It's the the Elixir project I'm doing. It's it was previously a Node slash Ember app, and now it's going to be an Elixir slash Ember app. With the Ember app being a different, entirely different Ember app than previously was. Oh, interesting. I didn't realize it was a rewrite. Yeah, so it's total rewrite, brand new test suite, all that stuff. It's been ongoing in fits and starts for you know probably eight, nine months to a year or something like that. I haven't you know we've only been involved in the last two or three months, but. It reminds me continually that like what they're trying to do is a rewrite. Like they're trying to. There's a couple new things in there. Like the new permission. They have a new permission system. Things like that. The idea for them got in there before they were like, no, we need to just like the quickest way to do this is go feature for feature. If we truly need all these features, which they say they do, then to just go feature by feature, implement everything, and then do follow on work after that. So it's been somewhere between nine to twelve months. I think that this has been worked on, and it's hasn't seen really the light of day there's been some QA people touching it and it's like it's one of those things where like on a regular project where we either do greenfield work or maybe we come on to a project we like to do fast iterations right mm -hmm. and when you're doing yep. a complete big bang rewrite of feature for feature kind of stuff there's no way you're going to get that quick iteration like yep. <laughs> with real users using it you're going to get some QA people using it and maybe other developers using it but uh, you're not going to have real data. You're not going to have any of that stuff until much later in the process. And that's really scary. That's one of the scarier things about rewrites to me. Yeah, I agree. So how are you tracking feature parity between the, the old system and the new system? On this project, it's done with, they have project managers, or product managers, mm -hmm. I think. I don't know which, which one of those they are. But they manage it through Jira. And at this point, I think we've got we're feature complete as far as I know. And that was just like QA finding bugs and things like that. And I made the point the other day in our retro that like we can do as much QA as we can possibly do, but we've been working on this for nine to 12, we, you know, however long we've been working on this, there's going to be bugs. And like everybody in the room who was most was technical was like, of course there's going to be bugs. And I was like, yeah. okay, but somebody needs to tell people higher up the chain <laughs> that that's going to be the case. Yeah. And and they were all like, oh, you know what? That's a pretty good point because I think we've basically just been like, oh, yeah, it's going to be feature feature rewrite and kind of assuming that everybody knows what that, that oh, rewrite means there's going to, this is all new code yep. trying to do the same thing. There's probably going to be some things that don't work exactly the same. Do you guys have an abort plan? <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I don't think it would work because part of it migrates the database. Right. That's always a, a, one of the big, one of the big ones, right, is if you can't do a staged rollout and you can't abort if if it turns out something has gone horribly wrong. Right. And no, I don't, I really don't think that they, I mean, they could, I mean, presumably you would back up, right? So you could, you could back up and then you could do something with the diff in the database in the meantime to like backport any data that came in while you were live on the rewrite. Um, so you could theoretically do that. I think that they'll, they are just going to have to feel confident that like, there is no rolling back. There's only rolling forward. Right. Well, because that's the thing, right? If you don't have the abort plan set up and ready to go when you do it, then... And tested. <laughs> and tested. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not going to be a thing that get developed on the fly when it turns out like, oops, we're dropping user data or something like that. Yeah. And this is, this is actually going to use the same database. So it's not even using like... It's not like we created a schema from scratch and then imported that data into that schema, which is what we did on T1D. On T1D, it was a Mongo database and Goose actually wrote an importer to take things from the Mongo format and put them in in a relational format and insert them into Postgres. But we created that schema from the ground up. And then, so so like when we relaunched, there was still the Mongo database that we could have rolled back to, right? Um, right. With the but they were also the able base. to tolerate downtime. Right, that's true. Mm -hmm. So what does a good abort plan look like? 
Well, I mean, I think the, the the first thing that's key is not just flipping the switch for the entire user base at the at the same time and doing a phased rollout where you have 10% of your user base on it. Let let that go for a little bit and look for look for warning signs and then up to 25%, et cetera, et cetera. And I mean, a good abort plan is basically just swapping back to the old code base and having things continue to function right. um, while you then address whatever the problem was. Yeah. The data is always the problem in those situations, though. Like, yeah. If your new system doesn't have the same schema, then you know when you those ten percent of people that you move over need to be working on a different copy of the data, in a different right. schema. And then if you end up having to roll back, you've got to take any of the data they inserted in that new schema, and put it back in the old database in the old format somehow. Well, uh, and I mean I think that's part of why, right? If you're if you're doing a phased rollout, you can weigh, for example, like how much data are we able to lose before before it's unacceptable. Sure. Yeah. If you if you catch it within the first thirty seconds and it's and it's a a, a per small percentage of your user base, maybe it's not the end of the world. Maybe it is, depending on your application. Um, but I think that's also why a lot of people shy away from uh, changing the schema when they're doing rewrites. Hmm. To that point, let me tell you about <laughs> the, the, where the data in the legacy application that I am helping rewrite or redesign or whatever it is is located. It's so the legacy app is a cold fusion app and the data is in a SQL server database that is 10 to 15 years old. And there are about three and a half million user records. I say user loosely. It's one of the kinds of users, but that gives you a sense of the yeah. size of the data set. Yeah. So we need to move all that data from a, from SQL server to Postgres. Why? Why? Um, well, tell me more about why you're asking why. I mean, I mean, I mean like, th that doesn't seem like an assumption that needs to get made. You can use Rails with SQL Server. And you can adapt Active Record to work with legacy schemas. You can configure, you know, what it treats the primary key as, if there's prefixes, capitalization rules, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And so that's the first thing you would think to do. Right. Well, it's lower risk. That's true. Yeah, yeah, all these I feel like all of these things are trade-offs, right? Like even the getting back to the abort plan, like that's going to take an investment. Is it worth like is it worth the investment is a question everybody has to ask, but it's a, certainly an interesting case cuz you three and a half million user records on like 15 years worth of data is certainly a lot of data that's probably presumably pretty valuable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you would think so. So, <laughs> I think that we we jumped to thinking that we would want to migrate the data initially because we know that we are going to be, because we're redesigning some of the core flows, our modeling may be different from the modeling that exists in the legacy application. And I understand that this is what ORMs are for, et cetera, et cetera. But um, I think we were thinking we want more control over the structure of the data than what just using the SQL server would afford us. I mean, it's still possible to, mi you know, write migrations against that SQL Server database. And that's, that seems like it would be easier to test in a smaller change. Mm, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, we did the similar thing on T1D, right? We moved from Mongo to, which we could work just fine with, with Rails, yeah. to Postgres. Uh, which, I think that was a mistake personally. Okay, but we we it's a question, again, of where you invest. Like, there's a trade-off. So we invested not in worrying about being compatible with Mongo, Instead, anything we would have invested in worrying about being compatible with Mongo, we invested in importing and testing the import of the data of the data into the new thing. <laughs> testing being used very loosely there. It was pretty well tested. 
the import script? No, it yeah. wasn't. Yeah, it was. No, I, I remember when because I, I ended up taking over that thing, and I was like, "Why aren't there any tests?" And I, I remember, okay, oh so well, there this no was going to be a one-off <laughs> script, so we weren't going to have t- we weren't going to write tests for it. <laughs> like that, we way underestimated the amount of time that was going to take us, and it was the source of so many issues. I do remember that getting assigned originally. I forgot that you took that over. I do remember that, like when you were not on the project yet, and it was just me, Caleb, and Goose. I remember the reason why Goose ended up working on it is that he was out that day. so it was like uh i was like i'll work on this and kel was like i'll work on this other thing and then it was like great goose will work on the import (laughs) yeah but it just turned out to have so many more corners that that we didn't consider i think we ended up eventually like even after it had already been gone back and forth four or five times and found a bunch of bugs like I think we ended up having to spend another a whole a, like a full two weeks on it, uh, just because there were so many there were so many corner cases that we didn't consider. Right. So let's say let's say it took us six weeks, right? Which is probably about accurate, I would say. Yeah. If it took us six weeks to do that, is it is that worth being rid of Mongo? I don't I don't know, but I think there's a, the trade off doesn't only include that. What do you mean? I mean, it also includes the ability to more easily test with the existing with the existing data set. The fact that that actually aborting the re, the deploying the rewrite wouldn't require backporting data because it's on the same it's going against the same database right we would have lost the need for downtime mm, probably yeah i'm not and i'm not even saying that that's all of the trade-offs or that this necessarily it argues my point i'm, I'm just I, it, there's more to it than just the time we spent versus the time we saved by not having to deal with mongo yeah there's also the case in in, in that particular rewrite Part of the reason we moved to Postgres is that the client wanted to for analytics perspective. Like they were getting, like they wanted a relational database to query and sure. do all of their research on. So that also, you know, it wasn't just that nobody really wanted to work with Mongo, although that was a <laughs> decent part of it. You know, moving in that place, we were moving across from a NoSQL store to, you know, from a document store, key value store, whatever you want to call it, right. to um, a relational store that the client found more value in. Yeah, and I mean, and we were also just in a unique set of circumstances where it was even really like, possible. So, Lila, you said, how are you handling, like, has anybody started approaching the migration of the data from the old database to the new database? Well, what we're doing is just trying to get a handle on what's in the old database. So, basically doing an audit of just trying to wrap our heads around all the different tables and how they're related and trying to understand what the relationships are and keep an eye out for weird stuff. Like there are some columns that contain SQL queries. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> and like, you know, there are stored procedures and, and there's a bunch of weird stuff. So we're just trying to not only understand the organization of the most important objects in the domain, but also get a feel for what those weird little corners and edges are. And, assuming we're going to move forward with the migration, how, whether those weird things need to be represented in the new database or not. So we're just starting with trying to understand what already exists. That seems seems wise <laughs> to get, a, get an idea of the shape and the type of data yeah. that is in there. Yeah. The SQL queries being in the database is certainly one that I would be like, well, okay. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that, that, that one seems interesting. Yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, and like we're preparing a massive list of questions for the developer of the legacy application and so he can shed some light on that stuff. And I think our hope is that coming out of that, we'll be able to identify things that we definitely don't need to migrate over. Like there are 
our entire columns and tables without anything in them and probably some tables that aren't really needed anymore and we might be able to get away with not moving those over so I don't know. That's it's honestly kind of overwhelming. Oh yeah, I meant to say earlier there are I think there are about a hundred tables. So getting an understanding of how everything works together is difficult looking at an ERD diagram with a hundred <laughs> tables, many of which are joint tables. <laughs> well, I think that's one of the other big, big costs and or risks of a rewrite is that it sort of relies also on the ability of the team doing the rewrite to be able to hold the the entire application in their heads. Definitely. I agree. I'm definitely feeling that right now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the entire application in your head thing, that comes up often when people are talking about like microservices, right? Like, right. oh, I can hold this entire mm -hmm. application in my head, but like a microservice, like I feel like there are very few interesting projects that you can hold entirely in your head. Right. And if you, mm -hmm. Even if you carve them out into microservices so that you're like, oh, the user service I can hold entirely into my head, the user service is useless without the thing the users are going to be using. Right. Yeah. So like the fitting the thing in your own in your head is something that like I just kind of feel like if you're doing something interesting, it's just something you're not going to be able to do ultimately, eventually. Eventually, you're going to have to yeah. be like, how does this work again? And then like hopefully the code is put together in a way that helps you understand that. And it's certainly like old code that I've seen that I have the itch to rewrite on certainly doesn't help in that manner because you've got things crossing different module boundaries and doing things from views that you shouldn't ever be doing in a view or hmm. whatever the that's case may I, that, be. That's what I think the microservice trend is, is just our overreaction to the fact that we're uh, really bad at setting and respecting module boundaries. Right, yeah. That seems that seems appropriate. I think we've talked about that yeah. in the past. Yeah. One of the things, too, um, of course, DHH has a blog post on the subject of rewriting things because... Basecamp is now on iteration three, right? And it feels like iteration two wasn't that long ago. What, four years ago, maybe? I think it was about three, yeah. Three or four years ago. And the basic point we'll link to, it's called the big rewrite revisited. But I feel like the basic point of it was it's okay to rewrite things if you're somehow reimagining the product or giving the product new life by rewriting yeah. it. And I think that's kind of most of the rewrites that we've been involved in. It's like, okay... We thought the product was this one thing. We want to switch to this other thing, but we have this giant mess. What do we do? Well, and Basecamp is also in a position where I don't think there's a lot of pressure on them to continue to add features on, on the existing product, right? So they have a lot more freedom to be able to reimagine it. I wonder if that's true. Like if we asked people at Basecamp, like, do you have, are there, is there customer pressure to add new features? Like maybe they're just really good at saying no. I don't even mean, well, I don't even mean customer pressure. I mean market pressure. Oh, right. Right. It's it's like where freezing for a year doesn't doesn't immediately sink them. There are businesses where if they if they stop iterating for a year, they would just go under. Hmm. Why do you think that is, though? Do you think that's because Basecamp is good enough as is? Or do you think there just aren't competitors? Like wouldn't not to get all um, Adam Smith, but wouldn't <laughs> in a in a free market, wouldn't somebody notice this and capitalize on the fact that oh, Basecamp's rewriting again? Let's write a project management system that, you know, I don't know, moves faster. Or something. And that's the thing, right? It's probably a little bit of both. It's probably a bit of just, yeah, there aren't necessarily the competitors hot on their heels. And then also probably a bit of the prioritization of features leading to not a ton of gaps that are critical. Like, I don't think there's necessarily one thing that leads to that position. But I, I do I, I do think that that is a position that that. So just to pick a random example, right? Uber. Mm -hmm. Right. I think they have a lot more pressure on them from uh, Lyft and whatever the other the other one is. Right. <laughs> Where. 
you know, they just rolled out their uh, thing where you can actually share rides with other people or something, and that and that's presumably going to lead to them gaining a bit more tra- uh, traction in San Francisco and the other cities where you might be able to get away without owning a car, mm-hmm. right? And I think they're a company that much more if they just completely froze for a year, sure, they'd be in a lot more trouble. Yeah, brand new. Like the idea of even having a service like Uber is brand new, right? <laughs> right. And that being and that being a technology product, which is what it is is brand new so that there's there's so much com- competition right now whereas the idea of having some sort of project management software on the internet is not so brand new right and their competitors aren't necessarily quite as interchangeable yeah who are their competitors mm, jira or yeah. like the whole atlassian suite probably but that's on a much i feel like that's on the higher end right the office 360 suite yeah slack is probably yeah, they probably use Slack extent. as a competitor. Oh, oh, you mean like the whole Basecamp suite of products? No, even just even just Basecamp, right? Like, even just Basecamp. I feel like I feel like people could oh, replace. Oh, yeah, Basecamp I see you're saying Slack. because it, like rapid or you know communication yep. that replaces email, yeah. that, document yeah, yeah. document sharing, that whole thing. And, that, yeah. and that's um, sort of the point of like their competitors are much. There's a, a lot more to the differences between them and their competitors. And it's interesting. You may we may look back at the period. I mean, I don't want to be a, like technology pundit here but we may look back at the Basecamp 2 to Basecamp 3 period and say that's when Slack killed Basecamp <laughs> right like it, I don't think it's the case but it could be right we don't right. we're probably too close to it to know right now so we're all saying like oh why can they just stop and rewrite maybe it'll turn out they can't or maybe they'll be just fine they probably will and they'll probably be Basecamp 4 in three more years the other interesting thing about Basecamp 2 to Basecamp 3 is that it is a new product Right? right, they didn't Absolutely. migrate users, so it's just a new product with the same name, and that maybe that doesn't maybe that actually disqualifies it from being a rewrite, right? Like they kept Basecamp two. They said Basecamp two, it's you know it's under maintenance, but it's basically done, and here's this new thing, Basecamp three. And I don't think there's even at least at first there was no way to even migrate. It was only like new projects you could move over right. to Basecamp three. I don't know if that's still the case. I don't know if anybody th- knows, but I think it is. But I mean that's the thing, right? Rewrite's actually a really tricky term to to pin down. Like yeah. Yeah. I, I call what happened to the type system in Active Record from 4.1 to 4.2. I call that a rewrite, even though it was an incremental thing and the tests passed after after every single commit to it. You know, the end result, the, certainly the, the intent of it was to replace a significant portion of the code. So I still refer to it as a rewrite, even if it wasn't a big bang rewrite, I guess, as, as you might put it. <laughs> right. And the functionality stayed the same. Um, roughly, yeah. I mean, a lot yeah. of bugs got fixed, but yeah. Yeah, that seems to be a an important characteristic to a rewrite is if the functionality stays the same or pretty much the same, then you can consider it a rewrite. If you're right. redesigning the functionality, the public interfaces, user experience, whatever, then I'm not really sure it's a rewrite. Well, that's the thing. We kept the same test suite. Right. Yeah. If you look at so if we look at like the Basecamp three thing, right? I feel like the attributes we talked about of like the the tough things you need to consider when you're doing a rewrite is like, how are you going to migrate data? Are you going to migrate data? Like they didn't do that, right? They they just punted on that, said we're not going to migrate data at all. You're going to have new data in the new system, right? Like how are you going to track feature parity? Feature parity wasn't their goal, so they didn't do that. They didn't right? care. <laughs> uh, yeah. Are you going to use your old test suite? Of course not. It's a different different product. Um, are you going to reimplement the styles? Or are you going to share them across applications? Like is one of the bullet points you had. And like I don't, I've never actually used Basecamp three, but I I don't know. Does it look entirely different than Basecamp two? Yeah, it does. Okay, so it looks entirely different. So like all of these things, it is actually just a new product. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean even uh, on the mobile side, uh, the mobile app is a completely separate download. Yep. Like mm. there's the Basecamp 2 mobile app and then there's the Basecamp 3 mobile app and they're two entirely separate apps. Yeah. I feel like 
I don't know that much about base camp. (laughs) 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 Like I need to go take a look at it now. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we use it for Rails internally, and it's it's definitely like very much a different product. Yeah, I mean, I only I'm only aware of Basecamp two mostly from using it here at Thoughtbot for various things. Although our use of it as kind of, mm, I think Slack and some of our own internal tools have kind of overtaken a lot of our use of it. And then you know there was some talk briefly about using Basecamp three or whatever, and that's that's how I know about the migrations and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely features that were cut and features that were added. And features that are just different. Do we have any advice? Like, how do you, because uh, there's probably mm. plenty of people listening to this podcast who are working on apps that are like, you know, what you would consider capital L legacy apps, like, you know, like, <laughs> oh my goodness, um, who probably want to rewrite them, right? And they're like, oh God, I'd love a reason to rewrite this, right? Because like, I feel like that's my way when I get on a legacy project. I'm like, I would love nothing more than to find like 10 reasons that tell me to rewrite this. And like I said, I never find, I very rarely actually find the thing that's like, okay. Let's rewrite this without a, without a big business reason for it. But I think the kind of apps that you just described, the, the capital L legacy apps, right? Those are going to be the ones that are al- almost impossible to rewrite because those are the ones where you can't, you just won't be able to hold the whole thing in your head. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like, how do you even begin to go back? The, the, I think the whole idea of the, the rewrite, right, is that you know more about, about it now. And so you can make better decisions. But if you don't actually understand the whole thing, that's almost certainly not true. Yeah. You think you know the whole thing. <laughs> right. Until you get into the middle of it, you don't. So yeah. it sounds like, Sean, it sounds like from what you're saying, you are very much still in favor of like digging in, doing small refactorings that lead to large refactoring so that over a, over a time span, you can consider yourself having rewritten aspects of the application. And if you do that enough times, you've basically rewritten the whole thing. Right. I, I mean, I think yes, but the Big Bang rewrite, I think it's fine if you're willing to accept you are building a new product. That seems fair. Yeah. I, li- I like that distinction. It's kind of like what we just came to with Basecamp. It's kind of what we did with T1D. We did build. We used. We did import the old data, but basically we built them a new product. Right. And what do you feel about like how do you feel about like your your rewrite that you participated in this summer and what you're doing now? Like where do you think that those fit in? Yeah, I think that looking back on that project over the summer, maybe knowing what I know now uh, up front, I probably would have advocated that we first take a look at the existing code base and basically perform an evaluation and say you want to you want to rewrite this but we want to make sure that that is going to be the best use of your time and money and confirm that this legacy code base isn't beyond being salvageable yeah i think that's probably what i will do going forward which can be difficult when when people have you know really decided or really dead set on rewriting but I think it might be the better approach in the long term not to. But as Sean says, if you're redesigning, if you're changing the functionality, then the Big Bang rewrite is is fine. Yeah. And I think it also probably depends on how established the thing is that you're rewriting, right? Like mm-hmm. I was talking about before when I was a less experienced developer, right, working on projects that I mostly owned, like those weren't super established. There wasn't a huge risk to getting the rewrite wrong. It didn't take you know, months and months and months worth of effort to rewrite it. If you can rewrite an entire thing in six weeks, like, yeah, that's that's probably a big budget for somebody, but it's not unreasonable. And it's it's kind of like a, a risk reward measurement, I think. Like we've mm-hmm. we've focused a lot on like established things that you want to rewrite. Like, you know, the database you talked about that's got fifteen years worth of data and you want to rewrite whatever is sitting on top of it. 
you know, that's a diff very different case than a startup that launched six weeks ago, six months ago, whatever the case may be, and now has a slightly different business in mind or like, or maybe, you know, their idea was proven out, but it was written by people who really just were getting something to run and now they need a foundation for a business, right? Mm -hmm. That I think is a different discussion as well. And that could still be a feature for feature rewrite, but just in a way that sets up a foundation. Yep. Um, and if you do that early enough, the cost is probably smaller because again, to what Sean was saying, you can keep that system in your head. Yeah. yeah. Well, and that's the thing, right? Is about the risk and reward, but we, not even just in this scenario, but as developers in general tend to vastly underestimate the risk part of that ratio. And so I think it's just always about looking for the places where you can minimize the risk of doing a rewrite. And a lot of times that means doing it incrementally so that you can deploy code sooner so that you can catch mistakes sooner or choosing to leave certain legacy aspects of infrastructure in place so that way so that you have less risk of migrations in those sorts of places, hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. yeah. And the other thing the other thing we didn't talk about was like assessing how you got into the position you're in in the first place and why mm -hmm. it'll be different this time. <laughs> right. Like if, if you haven't solved any of the problems that led to the mess that you're in right now, then getting approval to rewrite your application from your bosses is not going to solve the problem because you're going to eventually, pretty quickly, generally, <laughs> end up in the same situation only with new code. So whatever the case may be, like if you had developers who maybe weren't as familiar with the frameworks they were using or maybe, I don't know, what else, what, what, what else would lead you what other characteristics have you seen in teams mm. that have code that need to be rewritten, really? I, mean, I think one big question to ask is if you take any any smaller portion of, of the rewrite. So just to pick a random example, not to pick on this too much, but like the migrating from SQL Server to Postgres mm -hmm. in your project, Layla. Like one of the questions I would ask then is, okay, so is that something that you could or would consider doing on the existing app, right? And then if the answer is no, uh, look at the reasons why not and then ask, are those reasons any less valid with a rewrite? So, you know, one answer might be something like, well, there's just too many models and classes that we'd have to change to work with the new schema. Then it's like, okay, but sure, but does that actually go away if you're if you're just rewriting it with something else, right? I'm not saying that, that any of this applies to that specific situation, but just using that as an example of sort of the exercise of if you wouldn't do some smaller portion of that rewrite in place as a refactoring, do those reasons go away if you're rewriting it? Hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that's a good approach to take. I don't know. I think the over the over the summer, I never actually really looked too much at the the legacy code base. But my understanding was that it was considered to be unreadable and unmaintainable, and the test coverage was very low, so it was hard to know what the functionality actually was. So right. those are all that. That was like the state of the code base. I think that probably generally describes the state of many code bases that people feel are ripe for rewriting. Yeah. And I think one of the things one of the things that often I was trying to think of the other things that lead to like other than like developers who aren't taking good care of a code base. One of the things that leads to it is businesses that aren't entirely sure of a business model or can't commit to oh, yeah. something, right? So they're like, yep. okay, well, I need the code to do this. But in this other case, I need it to do uh, this. And for this client in particular, we sold this. So we That's need to implement right. this feature. Actually, now and... that you mention this, this is exactly what <laughs> happened with that with that project. They're, they're, they had pivoted so many times as a business that there was a lot of legacy logic and just cruft in the code base. And what happens there is like the first time somebody asks you to do that, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, I just wrote this conditional here. And <laughs> if you're not thinking ahead of like, okay, if you if you don't quite yet recognize the pattern of like, 
oh, they're going to continually ask for the system to change in these ways. I need to think about ways to make that happen. Very quickly, you end up under a mountain of technical debt. And sometimes those, like the ways they're going to request it to change are really unknowable, really. Like they're very random as a business is trying to get its feet un under it, right? Because you're not quite sure exactly what the market wants you to do yet. One bright side of that is, at least in my experience with projects that have had that sort of situation, it gives you an excuse to go through and ask, do we still have this client? Because we have <laughs> we have conditionals for the, some special feature for them all over the code base. And it turns out they haven't been a client for six years. <laughs> right. <laughs> nice. Yep. But in the end, rewrites are a lot of fun, mostly. <laughs> like, like, I'm like working on this Elixir rewrite. Like, it's great. And when I have to look back at the old code, it's like, <laughs> oh man, I don't, I don't want to look at this anymore. Get me back to this Elixir code, which is actually really nicely written. So, like, they're great to work on. You just need to be upfront about the risks and know the reasons why you're doing it and why it's going to be, why it's going to be different. I don't want to make anybody like. I don't think the you should never rewrite software is right. Um, for the reasons we laid out, I think there are times when it when it makes sense, but it's not something to be taken lightly. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I would just qualify it to never rewrite software unless you're willing to admit that you're, build that you're building a new product. Because I think even if that's not your intention, there's always changes in the functionality that you do. Like, there, there's ways that the application functions that people just miss. I, I don't know that I've ever actually seen a, an application try and go feature for feature rewrite and have it actually succeed and continue and be feature for feature functionality compatible that's yeah. probably true which i mean i guess maybe you can you, you you can acknowledge that something will change without calling it a new product but the idea but my i guess my point being acknowledging that functionality will change yeah and i think that's what i was trying to get across when i talked about that retro we had last week for this project i was like mate i want to make sure that like yes we're telling them it's a feature for feature rewrite but like Things are going to be different <laughs> that we don't know yet. <laughs> bug for bug compatibility? Nope, not bug for bug compatibility. <laughs> <laughs> there will be fixed bugs and new bugs. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 58. Ratings and reviews on iTunes are greatly appreciated. If you have feedback on this episode or any other episode, you can find us on Twitter at underscore bikeshed. You can email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm, or you can leave a comment on the website. Thanks for listening to Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.